Welcome to Am I the Advocate, a podcast dedicated to sharing the most up-to-date information on environmental justice in Oregon. We are your hosts, Amanda Brady and Ilana Lynn. Today's episode will be focused on law and policy, and we are joined by our expert, Professor Benjamin, who has advocated for environmental justice both in research opportunities she has pursued and as a law professor at Lewis and Clark's Law School. Thank you for joining us today. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, of course. And I know your career is taking you to many different places. And so I'm really like very excited to hear about the different perspectives you've gained from all of those previous experiences. But before I get too ahead of myself, I wanted to start by asking you to share more about your career path and kind of what piqued your interest in environmental justice. I am really happy to talk about my career path. Whenever I have guest lectures in my class, I ask them to do the same thing. I think that students often think that career paths are really linear and you get your like amazing first job as your favorite job and you stay there. And that's often not what you see with people who end up um, on, like talking about their career paths. So I was born in the Bahamas. I grew up there. I ended up going to school for law school in London because that's the type of law we practice in the Bahamas. It's um, predominantly based on um, English law. I ended up going into a large commercial firm for almost eight years. I practiced commercial law. I um, gained incredible skills like drafting and negotiating skills. I worked with very smart people and on the other side of very smart people. And it gave me some really um, keen legal tools, but I realized that it wasn't where I wanted to end up in terms of my career. And so I went back to the Bahamas where I switched into predominantly uh, corporate law for a year. I also realized that's not what I wanted to do. And then there, a position opened up at the University of the Bahamas and um, for teaching law. And so I did it part-time at the first, and then I just loved it. And so I switched full-time into teaching at the university and I did an LLM part-time And during that LLM, I took environmental law, which covered climate change. And environmental law was not offered at the time that I did my law degree, so it tells you how long ago that was. And so having studied environmental law and specifically climate change, I realized it was such a big issue for the country. I started writing about it. The government um, asked me to join some committees, the National Climate Change Committee, and then eventually I was asked to give legal advice to the government of the Bahamas during the um, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Negotiations. So I was part of the Bahamian um, delegation. I ended up negotiating for the country in the Paris Agreement negotiations. And so it really has taken on um, uh, being in a small place and working for government really piqued my interest in climate change. And I then um, decided after 12 years there that it was time to move on. And so that's when I did some postdoctoral fellowships in the UK and Canada and ended up at Lewis and Clark uh, three years ago. Well, that is a really amazing path. And definitely like Alana and I are about to graduate and it is just a relief to hear that you can, you know, pursue all these different options and kind of explore all these different interests along the way. Um, But I'm really surprised by, to be reminded that environmental law is so recent in a way. Um, (laughs) That just like really blows my mind. Yeah. And I do want to say that all of the, my, my research now looks at the overlap between corporate law and climate change, which five years ago was not a thing, but all of the negotiation and experience I got in private practice, all those skills to negotiate I used in the climate negotiations, the drafting skills, the negotiating skills. And then I managed to create a research agenda, which um, included my past experience in commercial and corporate law. So 
Um, sometimes you have to wait to, for things to catch up with you. <laughs> but I think um, uh, it's helpful to know that not everyone like ends up in their ideal job uh, immediately. It takes some time sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I've kind of always wanted to be an environmental attorney. And even five years ago, when I was discussing this, people were like, oh, sure, environmental law, like that's a real path. And they kind of doubted if it was achievable. But now when I say people are like, that's amazing, we need more environmental attorneys. So there's definitely been a shift lately. Yeah. Yeah. And on the topic of kind of demystifying some of the, I don't know, obscurity of environmental law um, and the misunderstandings there, do you think you might be able to define environmental justice and what that looks like from a legal standpoint? Yeah, and I think uh, as part of the theme that we have, the the definition has evolved over time as well. And so the first definition um, really came from the history of the movement and the Executive Order 12898 from President Clinton in the 1990s. And that executive order focused predominantly on low-income communities and communities of color. And so if you look at um, some of the definitions in the the, uh, EPA, it really focuses on um, low-income communities and barriers to low-income communities and communities of color only. But I do want to point out that as more priority has focused on environmental justice, the definitions have evolved as well, including um, in Oregon. And so some of the executive orders proposed and put forward at the beginning of the Biden administration are much more comprehensive. And so that was a very narrow definition in the 1990s. And so one of the executive orders from the Biden administration um, is advancing racial equity um, and for underserved communities. And so you will often hear the term um, people of color or communities who have been historically underserved or disadvantaged, um, marginalized, affected by persistent poverty, inequality. Um, and so it really folds into it the issues of civil rights, racial justice, and equal opportunity. And I just want to um, read very briefly from one of the bills in Oregon that passed in 2021. It's called Bill HB 2021. And that talks about energy and energy justice. And the definition of environmental justice communities is communities of color, communities experiencing lower incomes, tribal communities, rural communities, coastal communities, communities with limited infrastructure and other communities traditionally underrepresented in public processes and adversely harmed by environmental and health hazards, including seniors, youth, and persons with disabilities. So that just kind of goes to show you from the 90s to now, we have a much broader understanding of environmental justice communities and a broader understanding that these really are historic, um, historically disadvantaged communities. And that sort of systemic nature of the disadvantage is much better understood, even in the definitions that we see in some legal documents. It really gives me hope that we have been able to see this change in that definition, because something that we set out to achieve with this podcast was revealing kind of the nuance of environmental justice and all the different issues that are connected to it. But I guess I'm curious how this like state level definition can have an impact maybe on a larger scale on other states, because from my understanding of law is that certain terminology can be really, really important sign of a courtroom and can kind of like determine the outcome of a case in a way. And so I'm wondering like if other states don't necessarily have statutes that are as inclusive as Oregon, what can be, do you have any ideas about like what can be done there or how we can really make sure that all definitions of environmental justice are inclusive? 
So one thing I will note about the HB 2021 um, bill was it was drafted in a very open and participatory manner. And so a lot of environmental justice groups and were involved in drafting the legislation. And that's why it has such a comprehensive, I think, definition of environmental justice communities, um, including um, the Green Energy Institute at Lewis and Clark Law School was involved in the drafting process. So it was a very broad process. It was it's not perfect, but it's much improved because of that um, public participation. The executive order I mentioned earlier in the 1990s and even the Biden executive orders on advancing racial equity in, for underserved communities, they are executive orders that are binding on federal agencies. And so that will be federal agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency um, or uh, the Federal Trade Commission or even the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They don't apply to state agencies, but federal agencies interact with state agencies in a lot of ways, including through funding. And so the executive order is not able to be litigated by individual people. So you can't go to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and say, you know, you're not complying with this executive order. But it does mean, in particular, um, the executive order on advancing racial equity, it requires federal agencies now, the 2021 executive order, to come up with equity plans. And so it tells federal agencies to go and think about the systemic barriers that um, you basically have erected because of your programs and policies and go and look at them from the perspective of equity and come back with a plan as to how you think you could address those kinds of barriers. And so some agencies have been doing that work. And so it is a directive from the executive, the White House, to tell federal agencies what to do. But it is not legally binding and we don't have... Um, environmental justice provisions in some of our traditional federal environmental statutes like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. However, there is um, progress being made at the state level. And so some states like New Jersey, I think New York, and also Washington. So I use the Washington Act in my environmental justice class. Washington recently passed a healthy, environmental, a healthy environment for all, the HEAL Act. And that is actually legislation that is binding on state agencies in Washington that tells them that if they're going to issue a permit in the state for a particular facility or you know issue a license they have to really take into account environmental justice communities and the whole idea of environmental justice is disproportionate impact and so if that permit or the license is going to have a disproportionate impact that legislation gives the state agencies the ability to refuse the permit that's really important, and it's been a very recent development in a number of states just in the past couple of years. And so Oregon, there was an attempt to um, pass legislation like that in Oregon, but it didn't, it didn't pass. And so we do see states taking action like that, and it's incredibly important, and it is, for the first time in the past couple of years, real legislative progress on environmental justice. There's also a federal draft um, legislation called the Environmental Justice for All Act at the federal level. It's been introduced by Cory Booker and um, through the House and the Senate and reintroduced in 2021 and reintroduced and it um, it just will not pass um, because of the um, the structure that exists between the two uh, parties. So it's not going to have, it doesn't have Republican support and so it's unlikely to pass at the federal level. But there is a draft and it does include a broad definition of environmental justice and really good provisions um, that if at one point it did pass, it, it would provide that federal um, floor that we don't have now. Yeah, something we've talked about with previous guests, such as Charlie Krauss and um, Sam Diaz, is the 
one, the limitation of our current federal definitions and federal law, but also the strength of Oregon's um, definitions and law. So it's good to hear that we are working in the right direction, that other states are also doing that. Um, And another thing we've talked about is the increase in the discussion around environmental justice. And you recently wrote an article titled Implementation Woes, Are Agencies Ready for Environmental Justice? Which I love the title of that. And it's, it is a quick read, so it's very accessible. Um, and can you talk about what it means for an agency to be ready to tackle environmental justice and some places that we're seeing improvements or places that need improvement? Yeah, I, um, that's a book review that I wrote uh, about a book by Professor Jill Harrison, and her book is called From the Inside Out, and I highly recommend it to my students and anyone interested in how federal agencies do or do not implement environmental justice. Um, her book, From the Inside Out, is from a, a really famous environmental justice book called From the Ground Up about the grassroots nature of environmental justice. And her um, book really walks through what we often call the standard narratives, the three basic reasons that agencies give why they cannot make more progress in environmental justice. Because as I noted, the original executive order on environmental justice was passed in 1994. And there really has not been since then um, substantive progress made until the Biden administration on environmental justice in federal agencies, including in the EPA. And so her book really articulates these three reasons that are often given. One is that federal agencies feel like they don't have regulatory footing. So they don't have a statute that they can look at that provides them with a legislative reason to refuse a permit. So they feel like they don't, you know, they don't have the um, legal authority to say no. The second reason is they feel like um, they don't have the resources to do this. And, you know, federal agencies are often understaffed and um, they often don't um, feel like um, this is really their job. And the third um, um, standard narrative is they feel like they don't have the expertise and so they don't want to, they don't really want to take it on. And so the Harrison book dives a little bit deeper into that. And she did a series of interviews at federal agencies over eight years, including the EPA and some state um, uh, agencies as well, including in Oregon. And what she found was that um, there really is organizational inertia. And she found even resistance to environmental justice issues within um, federal agencies. So one of the sort of pat phrases that you will hear with the EPA is we do ecology, we don't do sociology. I were not trained to deal with issues of racial injustice or historical inequity. And so because we're not trained to do that, we're just going to kind of not deal with environmental justice issues. There is a notorious um, uh, office that dealt with Title VI complaints, um, uh, civil rights complaints in the EPA, and basically they didn't really do anything for decades. They just wouldn't hear complaints. They missed their statutory deadlines. It was just notoriously bad. And so what one of the stories that she tells is that the management basically would send people to that office who had no civil rights training, who had not done a good job in the rest of the agency. So basically it was like punishment. Um, And the other issues were that, you know, if you did raise environmental justice, you weren't rewarded for that from an HR perspective. And so there were lots of actually institutional barriers, even though we have this executive order and it tells agencies to prioritize environmental justice and have some for decades, It's actually the systems and people basically within the agencies that were not taking environmental justice seriously 
the other issue they would think about is like, well, the government's just going to change and the next government's not going to take it seriously. And so why should I spend time dealing with this? So it was a really eye-opening book for me. And I think that that really speaks to the fact that if the head of the agency tells their personnel, this is important and it's going to continue to be important, and people are hired within the agency that actually really understand environmental justice and care about it, then that could actually, without regulation or legislation, make a huge difference in terms of how agencies deal with environmental justice. It is disappointing to hear the attitude that uh, has been present um, previously, and hopefully it's changing and adapting moving forward. Um, that is something that we've talked about as well as like people, like people our age, people who are looking to get into the professional world, they don't look at government jobs as frequently because it feels so unachievable, but it's the people like us who have the passions for civil rights and for just environmental justice in general, who could make big differences in government agencies and in politics by raising these issues and saying like no we need to put this at the forefront um and like that's one way to like be an advocate as our podcast advertises like just go in and speak in and saying like no this is a problem this is what we want you to focus on and when you're voting and looking into officials like see what their stance is on this because maybe they're a great candidate but they don't care at all about environmental justice and if that's something you care about that's something that you should also make sure your representatives and people in government that you have a voice in are sharing your voice. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. And I set that book review and we talk about the EPA in my class quite a bit because I'm trying to convince some of my students to go and work in governments because it's hugely important. I think it could make a, a, a huge difference and um, government agencies do need to diversify as well. And so it's really important that they hire people who actually understand what environmental justice means and how important it is and that are really passionate about doing something about it. And so the book is helpful because it gives some strategies that have been used by people who do care about environmental justice in agencies and strategies that can be successful and so it is it it provides a little bit of a roadmap as to how change can be made just by the people in these agencies yeah and kind of going off of that on a similar vein I'm curious what influence communities can have right now over like the EPA and just different agencies in their area? Like how inclusive would you say the rulemaking process is within those agencies? And is that something that just an average community member could go like sit in on a meeting or just like write to the head of that agency and be like, this is what I want to see. Do you think it's become more receptive as far as agencies being able to respond to that kind of direct feedback? Or are there still some institutional barriers there to like getting communities involved in this process? I think that um, in terms of the question of, you know, are there public meetings and can anyone go? The answer is usually yes, but I think the whole, the way that the public participation process has been carried out historically, there is a federal statute called um, the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, and that actually has been one of the more successful tools used by environmental justice communities to try to get agencies to consider the disproportionate impact that a particular project or facility might have. And that requires that agencies go through certain procedures, including public participation. And so having meetings, consulting with the community, but it is a largely procedural statute. And so if 
agencies, you know, have the meetings and they kind of say, okay, well, there's going to be a disproportionate impact. And then an environmental um, impact statement is written and that says, yeah, there's going to be a disproportionate impact. That's pretty much the end of the road. There is nothing substantive to say, and you can't issue the permit because of that. But that public participation process can affect a lot of change. Um, I will say that agencies are probably getting better at making sure that they should have like translations of these documents into different language. If you have a, you know an English deficient community, or making sure that they have um, meetings in the actual community where the facility is going to be built, and that they have a translator there, and you know that they have it at hours that are reasonable for working people, and that they might have childcare and all those things. I think they're getting better at that, but you know historically they have not been so good at doing that. I would say absent the public participation process, the whole agency process of creating a rule and promulgating a rule and putting it out for comment is very opaque. It's a very specific area that the public has to go to. You have to watch when the rules are being issued. You have to read the rules. So the SEC just issued a rule that was 500 pages. Um, that's a very specific and complicated area, but this it isn't generally accessible to um, let's say just a person who happens to live in a community and there's going to be a, a you know a facility or an um, industrial site being built there. So I think that agencies are working at getting better at it. And I'll give two examples of this. One is the Federal Energy Regulatory Com Commission or FERC. And so they regulate siting of energy projects. And so what they had was the Office of Public Participation, which was in their statute for decades, and they never set one up. And this is one of the sort of more hopeful cases that I um, have in my class. So they FERC did this environmental justice assessment, and it was terrible. It was truly terrible. I mean, it just said, yes, there's going to be disproportionate impact. And we didn't look at this community that was two miles away. We only looked at 1.5 miles from the pipeline. And they, the courts actually are also getting more sophisticated in terms of an EJ analysis. And the court said, FERC, this is a terrible EJ analysis. Go back and think about it. And actually what happened was that the government changed and the Biden administration came in. And one of the commissioners at FERC who had dissented to this order allowing this um, LNG terminal and pipeline said, this is just a bad EJ analysis that we're doing as an agency. But he was overruled by the majority of the commissioners who were appointed by the Trump administration. And then the government changed and he was then appointed as the head of the commission. He said, you know what, like this was really bad what we did. We were told by the court this was terrible. We're actually going to invigorate this Office of Public Participation. We're actually going to staff it. We're actually going to use the facility that Congress gave us in the statute. And we're going to use it to think about access to FERC, which is a really complicated technical area for ordinary people who are actually going to be impacted by you know, pipelines and LNG terminals. And so that is an example of FERC looking at this. The second example, and again, both of these, I think, were also inspired by the Biden executive order on advancing racial equity, is the USDA. <clears throat> so the USDA has a really um, uh, terrible history in terms of discriminatory lending and not lending to Black farmers in particular. And so they have appointed an equity commission that's going to come up with an equity plan to assess barriers, to look at the history of the discriminate, discriminatory funding that the agency um, uh, carried out and to try to gain trust with the community as well that they have disenfranchised. And so those are two examples of where agencies are trying to um, make a better progress in these areas. 
Yeah, thank you for offering those examples. It definitely, it's, it's helpful to kind of see an issue laid out and then hear that there is some progress that, that can be made there. And, and kind of going off of um, you mentioning Washington earlier, this all kind of brought to mind the Duwamish River cleanup for me, um, because I know that the EPA actually did some work around removing some of the barriers to community involvement by like hosting meetings at schools and Mm -hmm. offering dinner and providing childcare. And all of those things are such simple little changes that do have a significant impact on people's ability to actually voice their opinions and be a part of the process. And and I think um, what ultimately came out of that was that the EPA was required to do its very first like environmental justice evaluation within the Superfund process. And it's it's incredible to see that that you know communities and grassroots organizing can influence these like legal outcomes and can change these processes that we've just kind of accepted or that have been the norm for so long. Yeah, it has been a long time coming. And I think what is needed, because if you think about the ability to make comments on a document or give feedback to an agency's businesses and industry have lawyers who are literally paid to watch this process and write comments. And, you know, there, there's a, there's an inequity in the system. So what you really need are grassroots organizations that know their communities that can have the resources to be able to attend meetings and provide comments but you also need political pressure on the agencies to respond to them as well. Absent legislation, those two pressures from the top and from the bottom are really important um, for agencies. Yeah, absolutely. And earlier we were talking about like the need to diversify, um, especially in government. And so something super exciting that my father and I were on the phone for um, and just screamed with joy was the nomination and um, election of Judge uh, Kitanji Brown-Jackson. And why do you think having her as a Supreme Court is, Supreme Court Justice is so important and so amazing? Yeah, I am just smiling ear to ear. Just the mention of it just makes me so happy. Um, It's huge. I mean, we have a woman of color, Justice Sotomayor, who's been on the court for um, some time, and that was really exciting. Um, And just to have Justice Brown Jackson um, appointed to the Supreme Court, it's such a huge statement, um, particularly for women of color and Black women in particular. Um, We have some really um, exemplary, even some of the candidates um, that, you know, you look at them and you're just like, wow, these women are amazing. And so while I was disappointed by her process and the questions that were asked of her, that was definitely difficult to watch um, because some of those questions were just inappropriate and they really just didn't take into account her tremendous expertise. But, um, you know, she was really uh, a champion through that. She was just really um, just very patient (laughs) and um, that she's through that process and she will be on the court. It's just it's so inspirational. It's just hugely important. The the legal profession and uh, the judiciary are not very diverse. And so I think it's really important to have people like Justice Brown Jackson to look to as examples. And I just, to me, it just made my heart sing. I'm just, I'm so happy and excited about it. And so it was, it was just um, historic and hugely important and motivational, frankly, um, for, for, for most of us. Absolutely. I really want to go into politics. And I mean, I'm a queer non-binary person. 
And it always felt even more unachievable with that. And seeing this like resprung the hope for me um, that one day I'll be able to pursue my political career and I won't have to answer obscene questions. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and I just want to note that the political process is so important. I mean, we have this um, really kind of suite of young um, women in particular in the Democratic Party who are just so inspirational. And it's hard. They have a lot of biases that they have to struggle against. Um, and you have to be tough to do that. But it's just so worth it because you can effectuate so much change at that level. It's just, it's hugely important. And I just think that um, although the process is just not what it should be, we can't be, and you should not be dissuaded by that process. Like it is so important when you actually get into those positions because you can just change so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that I, I currently work at a law office and it's something we were talking about yesterday was the like youth and like the new sprung activism and like passion for politics. Um, And it's so hopeful and so exciting to see that even people younger than I am are like, no, I'm going to be a politician. I'm like, yes, do it. Like everyone should follow it if it's what their, what their passion is. I agree. I fully support that. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I've also just been really excited about this um, new addition to the Supreme Court. And and something that like I found myself reflecting on is is kind of seeing the Supreme Court as perhaps something that may eventually be outside of politics. I know there's still issues within that. And then, you know, things get kind of confluted. Um, but the typical term for a Supreme Court justice is much longer than, let's say, the typical term of a president. And something I think we see whenever we do have a new president that's elected is this kind of like big pendulum swinging that happens between policies and ideas and agendas, depending on what party they identify with. And something that was really disheartening about watching, you know, Trump's agenda was that he rolled back over 100 environmental um, justice statutes and rules and, and regulations. And I was wondering if you just have any kind of insight or thoughts on how we could take a more cohesive approach to justice that in a way depoliticizes it or kind of removes some of this extreme nature um, of the arguments that will kind of surround achieving justice. I don't have any, I'll be honest with you, I don't have any magic solutions for that. I will say when I teach administrative law, I do tell students that until the Trump administration, there wasn't such like dramatic swings um, between parties um, that we've seen. Um, It really has been in the past three or four administrations, and the Trump administration was particularly um, uh, not bipartisan in terms of, um, I mean, you'll have these traditional split between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, particularly around environmental issues, but it's become so much more extreme. And I think that makes it really difficult, um, particularly for federal agencies, because what happens is that the statute usually isn't amended because Congress can't agree to amend anything. But what agencies are asked to do is promulgate rules underneath those statutes. And the rules that the agencies will promulgate will depend on how they interpret the statute. And so the agency will issue a rule, um, for example, in the context of, let's say, NEPA that we've talked about, 
And for many decades, since 1978, the um, rule that the Council for Environmental Quality had issued to agencies to as guidance to interpret NEPA was that they should consider indirect effects and cumulative effects, which is obviously very important for environmental justice communities that have like project upon project upon project upon project permitted in their neighborhoods. And then the Trump administration came back and came in and just rolled that out and said, no, we don't want cumulative impacts in it. We don't want indirect effects. And agencies have to basically do what the, um, whatever, whoever the current president is and the executive say. And so they had to change the rules and change very settled understandings of what NEPA should be. And then, of course, the Biden administration came in and said, no, nope, we're going to go back to the 1978 guidance. And so agencies are stuck in this process where they have to comply with whatever the executive tells them to do with some qualifications with independent agencies, but largely they follow the, um, the regulatory agenda of the president. And we've had such massive swings in the past few decades um, between administrations that agencies are kind of stuck. They promulgate one rule and then four years later, they basically have to promulgate the opposite rule. And then four years later, they have a problem. And so they're just, there's so much back and forth and there's so much pressure and the public is asking them to do things like fix things like deal with COVID um, and the pandemic or, you know, deal with pollution. And so because Congress is unable to amend the statutes or update them, the agencies are under pressure to do that. And so they may have to stretch the understanding of their statutory mandate. And of course, the courts are not happy with that. And so it really is a systemic issue um, that uh, we are seeing between these really big swings. And I don't know that anything is going to get better <clears throat> in the short term because the parties are so diametrically opposed to each other, particularly around things like environmental issues, regulating businesses with environmental issues and climate change in particular. Um, we'll see in the next um, few months really a really big decision of the Supreme Court on the EPA's um, ability to regulate climate change. And nobody's really hopeful about what that um, opinion will say in terms of, you know, trying to deal with the immediate crisis of climate change. So I don't have any big fixes. Um, I think it's a really um, difficult um, issue to deal with when you have parties that are so far apart on really critical issues. That was a huge question. I actually think you did a great job of offering some insight as to some of the obstacles that that make that such a challenging, you know, question to try and answer and try and figure out. Um, but I am kind of curious, since you mentioned uh, the cumulative impacts that aren't necessarily being considered by um, different agencies, I was wondering if maybe you could tell us more about what that looks like with climate change. Like, what are these agencies maybe missing as they're doing these evaluations that they that they aren't considering with the impacts that communities are facing from climate change? There's a couple of tricky issues around climate change for agencies to deal with. One is term in terms of fossil fuel projects. If they if agencies when they are doing a cost benefit analysis and what the impact of the project will be, if they can consider um, indirect basically impacts of climate change. So for example, if you have an LNG terminal that's exporting liquid natural gas, can you take into account the fact that it's going to be exported to, I don't know, Europe or India and they're going to burn that natural gas and you know the emissions from that, can you take that into account? Or if you have, um, I don't know, like a fracking well that's being permitted, are you going to take into account the emissions from people actually, you know, using that natural gas in their homes. And so there's been some issue around whether or not agencies can look into, can deal with those kinds of indirect impacts. I think also legally there's been a recent controversy when 
agencies make decisions, they have to usually undergo cost-benefit analysis. And the Obama administration had introduced the social cost of carbon, which is basically the impact on our health of, of the impacts of climate change, which are huge. The Trump administration uh, removed that, and then the Biden administration is re-implementing that. And some courts um, in, in Louisiana particularly have said, no, the social cost of carbon is something that agencies cannot look at. So those are some of the legal controversies that are going on, in addition to whether or not coming up with the EPA, whether or not at the Supreme Court level, the EPA um, is able to issue a rule regulating basically greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. And in terms of actual impacts in communities, it's a complicated set of factors, but I'll just give one example of that is communities of color, in particular highways that have traditionally been cited either near or through communities of color. We have an example with I-5 in Portland. And so you will have the um, emissions from those cars, um, the air pollution, and particularly if children are going to school and living there, um, you have uh, really nasty pollutants that cause um, lots of significant health impacts, including respiratory diseases. Those um, impacts get worse because of the impacts of climate change, because the heat will push the pollutants closer to the ground. And so that means you're getting even more pollutants as a result of climate change. And then in addition, those um, particularly lung diseases, heart diseases, diabetes, which can all be caused by these pollutions, pollution make the communities more susceptible to COVID. And so that's a, that's a whole um, set of um, uh, really difficult issues for communities to um, deal with. And in addition, because the highway was cited there, the community is often divided. So culturally, you've lost connection with the community that used to be there. Property values are less because people don't usually want to buy a house near a highway, so you're kind of stuck. It's really hard for you to sell. And so there's economic um, and health impacts that uh, are a result of this one particular like project combined with the impacts of climate change and the pandemic. Something I've talked to Jay Odenbaugh with, also a professor at uh, Lewis and Clark and on the podcast, um, is that like an argument for environmental justice is why don't they just move then um and I think you just hit on like the key parts of like well one they can't move because of these issues that are piled against them or two they the only place they can move is places with other environmental hazards because of the price we can't all pick where we live based solely on where we want to live there's other factors that come into that that have to be considered um, for the people who are trying to argue. Yeah, and I think that's the whole argument of market forces. You know, people and companies just build where the land is cheaper, but it ignores the historic injustices of that, like redlining and restrictive covenants that restricted where people of color in particular could live in the first place. And so there are historic reasons why these communities are where they are, um, and not all of them are economic. They're actually legally restrictions on where people of color were allowed to buy through the law. So, um, and then redlining, of course, was a, a federal policy from the Federal Housing Administration, which you know restricted loans and, and improvement loans to um, redlined districts, which were basically districts where people of color lived. Yeah. And before this podcast ends, I just want to jump back to actually how we started this podcast, which is talking about your background. Um, and you have a unique perspective of studying in the United Kingdom and growing up in the Bahamas. And so what, like, 
how would you say the like United Kingdom or even European perspective and reactions are to environmental justice in relation to the American perspective? I will say that there is a history in the EU and the UK of immigration as well. Um, and But I think that the concepts of environmental justice are actually less developed in those jurisdictions. Um, and so they didn't have the sort of a history of like redlining that we had discussed, but there definitely are communities and environmental justice, justice communities where industries developed or are really close to polluting areas. And so I actually think in terms of the law, environmental justice is less sort of recognized there. But I will say the plus side in Europe, for example, is there's much uh, more stringent regulation of everything, basically, including food and the quality of food um, and air pollution. And so generally it's a more regulated, uh, regulated set of countries. And so that creates a baseline that's not as sort of... Um, uh, difficult in terms of uh, living with. Um, and I will also say that in terms of climate change, which is my main area that I work with, the EU and the UK have been much more advanced in terms of passing legislation to reduce emissions um, from the country. And so there's definitely less of a denial of climate change. I think that is particular to countries like the United States, countries like Brazil, depending on the leadership, but you know, at the moment, countries like Brazil and the Philippines, um, there you really don't have that stringent political divide between conservative parties and more progressive parties. Um, there are exceptions, of course, in the EU, it's a lot of, a lot of different countries, um, but by and large, you have a general political consensus that climate change is happening and something should be done about it. It just depends on how progressive those measures are. Yeah, I one thing that I like about being in Oregon, um, and because I came from Georgia, and so I was much less important to have environmental justice talked about there. Um and I like that Oregon's kind of coming in, it's having those communities talk and it's accepting other views as well. And I think that that's something that has to happen internationally is company or not companies, countries need to meet and talk with each other and come to almost a consensus. But international law is a whole nother bag that we don't need to open at this point. <laughs> um. But to end the podcast, we always like to end on a good and happy note. Um, so is there anything hopeful or inspiring that you would like to share with the listeners? I will just pick up on the last point, not to talk about international generally, but the, the, one of the first meetings of environmental justice in the United States was the first um, international environmental justice meeting. And so they had members from all over the world who I was not there, but um, met to talk about international EJ issues. And I think that it has not replicated that kind of international connection that it used to have. And so I think it did start that way, but it hasn't continued. I would say in terms of hopeful um, uh, areas, it really is young people, my students. I mean, having such a large environmental justice class this year has just been so heartening um, that young people are interested and aware and much more open to talking about these issues. Um, and really fired up to do something about it. It's just so encouraging to me because working in an area for so long with no progress can be very dispiriting after a while. And so just seeing the energy and enthusiasm of young people who really want to actually change things has been, I'm inspired by um, all of you and my students um, every day. 
And so it's really exciting and it gives me hope and energy so that things will, um, things have already changed, but they need to change a lot more. So. Well, thank you for that very hopeful little note there. And since we brought up international law, I just wanted to like very briefly jump in here and offer a, another little note of hope. Um, but I recommend to our listeners that maybe they check out the Montreal Protocol because that actually was a really successful, well, at the time, very successful um, international agreement that has led to, um, or I guess just stopped the depletion of our ozone, um, which was really, really important and a, a huge kind of climate success. So yeah, wanted to plug that in there real fast. Yes, Amanda, thank you for sharing that. And thank you, Professor Benjamin, for coming in and just sharing your knowledge with all of us. It was really just so fun to listen to you speak. And I look forward to taking your classes in the future as well. I look forward to having you. Thank you so much for organizing this podcast. It's such a great initiative. And it was so well organized. And I really appreciated it. So it was a real pleasure being with you both. Well, we appreciate it. And thank you for all the listeners. And if you want to stay up to date on the podcast and submit questions for future guests, follow our Instagram at Am I the Advocate. If you want to help support the podcast, please rate, follow, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to ask yourself, Am I the Advocate?